Good morning and welcome. My name's Craig. I'm the senior pastor here, and it is our privilege to have you with us. If you're a guest with us, thank you so much for making the time to be with us. If you are a guest and you've never filled it out on the inside of the worship folder you were given when you walked in, there's a little tear-off. If you would tear that off for us and just drop it in an offering plate on your way out, we can have a record of your visit. That would help us a lot. If you'd prefer, you can do that online at malvernhill.org connect. In just a moment, we'll be in Exodus chapter 20. Before we get there, a couple things for you to mention. First, uh, this is Veterans Day weekend, and so what I would like to do is to ask anybody who has served or is currently serving in the military, if you would just stand for us this morning. We just want to recognize you and thank you for your service, so we'd stand. Appreciate that. Thank you all so much. You can be seated. The second thing to mention this morning is tonight, it, uh, we have our annual Thanksgiving dinner. So the Thanksgiving season is upon us. So meats and uh, dressing will be provided. So come on, bring a side if you would. I, I'm, I'm recruiting pralines. So if anybody wants to make pralines this afternoon, I'll eat them. But uh, beyond that, uh, y'all come and uh, uh, celebrate with us. We'll be in the back. I believe afterward, uh, they need some help setting up tables. Is that right, uh, Tom, after, after service? So anybody that can help um, uh, able-bodied humans that can help set up tables and chairs in the back, they really need some help. All right. Other than making sure that you bring good desserts, that's all I need to talk about. So uh, y'all bring a side dish and a dessert, and that'll be excellent. We are in Exodus chapter 20. I should have turned, shouldn't I? Exodus chapter 20. And we are in verse 14. I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word. Just one verse. You shall not commit adultery. Let's pray together. Father God, this is a heavy topic and one that is, Lord God, important but difficult to wrestle with. I pray, Lord God, that you would speak to us, comfort our hearts, convict us where necessary, Lord God, and call us to repentance. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Will you trust God's design? Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. These are Paul's warnings from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. Sexual sin is a big deal, regardless of what culture may try to convince us. And when it comes to sexual sin, none is greater than adultery. In the ancient world, adultery was known as the great sin. It was considered a sin against your spouse your God, and against your entire community. Adultery is the breaking of a vow to God and to your spouse. It is the willful destruction of our most intimate and valuable earthly bond. Now listen, this is a hard sermon because it is an incredibly heavy subject. One that is and has threatened to rob me of my joy even in preaching, which is saying something because I would rather preach than eat. The subject of adultery feels like a wet blanket that is smothering my soul as I consider the dangers and the damage. So I come to you today asking you, begging you even, to trust God's design for marriage. Your family our society and maybe even your very life depends 
upon you trusting in God's design. I don't want to oversell it, but the truth of the matter is that marriage matters. And marriage matters far more than our culture wants us to believe, and it matters far more sometimes than even we realize. This morning, there are four points that I want us to take away from this commandment. And four points that I think are very applicable. But because there are four, we got to hurry up because I usually only do three. We have a lot to cover this morning. So the first thing I want you to see is this. I want to encourage you this morning to honor God's design for marriage. Honor God's design for marriage. Now, what is God's design for marriage? It's really pretty simple. One man, one woman for life. That's it. That's God's design for marriage. One man and one woman. If you don't believe me, then let me just read to you Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is God's design for marriage. It's really not that complicated. Man is supposed to leave his family of origin. He's supposed to grab on to his wife. She's supposed to leave her family of origin. And the two of them together create a new, unique, wonderful bond, marriage bond, and they create and become their own family unit. Now, as I work through um, marriage counseling with people, this, this is actually one of the more challenging things that happens for couples that don't move away from home. And by, by move away, I mean like more than you know 30 minutes from home even. One of the more challenging things is, is breaking that bond with your family of origin. But it's absolutely essential. God says that when you get married, your husband and the husband and wife, they become a brand new thing. And we've got to encourage that. We've got to honor God's design for marriage. It is one man and one woman for life. So that means no polygamy, no homosexuality, no open marriages. But it also means, and we can't miss this, it means that a man is supposed to be committed to his wife and a wife is supposed to be committed to her husband again, above and against all other things. we got to honor God's design for marriage. Now, listen, parents, I want y'all to listen to me. My generation, so y'all that are in, in this generation with me right here, us, here's what we got to be careful of. We run maybe the greatest risk of any generation of interfering in God's plan for a man to leave his family of origin and to cling to his new family. And this is why. We have access to more technology and more opportunities to care for our children than any other generation on the face of the planet. We talk about all the things that kids have that are getting in the way of what they're going to be. But as parents, look, we can track them everywhere they go, can't we? We've got Find My iPhone and I don't know what you weird Android people use. I'm sure you all have something... Um, it's not as good, but you have it. Um, and, then, and then, you know, you've got the, the Life 360 app that a lot of y'all use. Like, it doesn't just tell you where your kids are. It tells you where they've been. It tells you how fast they drove on the way there. And about two months from now, they'll probably have enough AI to tell you where they're going two hours before they decide to head there. I don't have that in my life. And I'm going to be honest with you why. My anxiety can't handle it. I, I don't need all of that information. I recognize that. I, I know that about me. But I also know this. I know that the day is going to come when my beautiful children decide that they're going to fly the coop and leave their dad. So my daughters are going to marry about 40, uh, at about age 40. That's about when they're allowed to marry. And, um, and at that point, right, I understand. I'll probably 
cave in and let them go about 30. But, um, but I, I recognize that at that point, there's going to have to be this huge dis- difference, right? I'm going to have to kick them off of the family iPhone plan because there's a real temptation that we need to be aware of where I could become a meddling father or father-in-law. And some of you ladies could become a meddling mother-in-law, right? Just imagine those of you that have a mother-in-law um, or that perhaps are a mother-in-law. Just imagine your mother-in-law having access to know where you are 24-7 at all times. Just imagine how exciting that might be if you have a wonderful mother-in-law and how terrifying it might be if you have a difficult mother-in-law, right? And I'm sure there are good mother-in-laws out there somewhere. Um, I have one, I'm kidding. But, but you see the challenge there, right? Like we've got to be very careful as parents because this is already one of the, the greatest challenges that I see for young couples is they got to, they got to put mom and daddy on the back burner and they've got to establish their own family. When things get hard, you know, you can't run away from home and go and tell mama how bad it was. You can't run to daddy and tell him how bad it No, no, no. No, mom and daddy have got to say, no, this is your family. And so we've got to make sure that we are raising children to honor God's design for marriage. Now, look, we've got to honor it too. We've got to honor it. God's design is one man and one woman for life. I've got to be committed to my spouse from now on. From now on. Now, we're going to talk a few minutes about the dangers and the struggle that comes with divorce. Sometimes those things are realities. But I want to say this to you. If you are engaged to somebody, if you are dating somebody, listen to me. If you don't look at them and think, this is the person I want to spend the rest of my life with, just walk away. If you don't think it's possible you could spend the rest of your life with, just walk away. Especially if you are above the age of 18 years old. You need to make some distance between you and them. All right? And, and let me just give this other word of encouragement. I, I used Jerry Clower as my illustration in the last service. Jerry Clower has a pretty good bit where he says, hey, if, he say, say to his kids, if you have to ask if it's dirty, it is, you know? You're a kid, is this dirty? Can I wear it? If you have to ask, it's dirty, put it in the hamper. If you have to ask if this is the right person for you to spend the rest of your life with, walk away. If you don't know that you can do this and you've been dating this person 8 months, 12 months, 18 months, walk away. Save yourself the heartache. Save your family the heartache. Save your future children the heartache. Make the decision to walk away. Because the, the idea is that we're going to be committed. And, and look, by, by the way, this idea of commitment, we got some people in this church that have been married for well over 50 years. God's plan for marriage is that you would breathe your last breath with the person that you marry. If you're going to get to that place of a 50-year marriage, I do want you to know this. There's going to be some rough patches along the way. There's going to be a week or two or three or a month or two or three where the best thing that you're going to do for your marriage is one of you is going to do something on one end of the house and the other one is going to do something on the other end of the house. And y'all are going to meet in the middle for dinner and you're going to meet in the middle to go to bed at night and you're going to love each other well in that, but you're going to know that you can make it through it. But you're also going to know that in the middle of it, it's hard. It's challenging. It's a struggle. Y'all, I want you to be okay with that. Because our goal is not to have every single day perfect. Our goal is to find ourselves at the end of a 50-year marriage or a 40-year marriage and go, man, this is amazing. 
Here's the encouragement for you. The difficult days that you find in year three or four, year 10 or 12, the best weeks, months, and days of your marriage aren't going to be found in the first five years, probably not even the first 10 years. Your best years are going to be found in the last 10 or 15. The future's out ahead of you. Fight the good fight to honor God's design for marriage right now because there's something better to come. Honor God's design for marriage. The second thing this morning, I want you to celebrate God's plan for marriage. I got ahead of myself, but God's plan is for marriage to be a lifelong commitment. Lifelong, from now on, okay? And it's okay if it's difficult sometimes, but not only is it his plan for it to be lifelong, God's plan is for marriage to be open to children as well. The Bible says in Genesis 2 that we are to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, not every marriage has the opportunity to conceive children. Not everybody gets to do that. Some folks, for reasons that we don't understand, are unable to do that. That's okay. That's not wrong. But when we walk into a marriage, we walk in with the necessity that we are open to the idea of having children in that marriage. Just this morning, I read a news article from a 21-year-old girl who's decided she wrote an op-ed for a major news organization to inform the whole world that she will not be having children. She will not be having children because of her concern for the environment, and as a result, she won't bring children into this world. Now, we might snicker at, at the, the sort of ignorance of 21 years old and, and how they don't know much about the world, but here's what I want you to be aware of. That 21-year-old has a particular worldview that she's been, she's been raised into, and that particular worldview is one that doesn't honor children as much as she honors some, some idea of, of the existential nature of environmental struggle. That means this is a 21-year-old young lady who's not been exposed to the teachings of this word, and as a result, she's found her own religion that she's got to cling to. Y'all, we've got to make certain that as married people, we are open to children. Not only are we open to children, married couples should be active in the building up of society. Active in the building up of society. Now, some of you are like, wow, Craig, that's a pretty big deal. Like, you want us to, what, what are you looking for? For us to all be politicians and run for office? No, no, no. I mean, it's okay if you do. That's great. But, but let me just give you the, the biblical understanding. The Bible says that we are to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and to exercise dominion. To exercise dominion. Now, in its, in its original concept, before sin entered the world, Adam and Eve exercised dominion by plowing and planting and tending the garden that God had given to them there in the Garden of Eden. After the entrance of sin into the world, Adam and Eve are kicked out of this beautiful place and instead they encounter a world that is full of thorns and thistles. They encounter a world that suddenly does not cooperate with them as they desire. So when we think about the word dominion as God has given it to Adam and Eve and by extension given it to all of mankind, what we are seeking to do is harness God's creation, harness God's creation, bend it under our will and to make it useful for the flourishing and the goodness of mankind and for the glory of God. Now, when we combine those two things, that means that part of harnessing it and making it useful means caring well for the creation that God's given to us, but it certainly also means that we are to do all we can to sort of domesticate this wild world in which we live in the same way that you would domesticate a wild animal, train it to be useful. And so we build up our society certainly with things like, like farming, with building bridges and building buildings and building homes. Those are wonderful ways that we exercise dominion, but we also build up our society in smaller ways. 
by participating in the PTO, by volunteering at a nursing home, by coaching a little league team. In those ways, what we are doing is we are seeking to exercise influence over this wide world where God has placed us. And as married couples, we should seek together to build families that are harnessing the power of this world for the good not only of us, but even for the good of our neighbors and for those that we might not know. We have a responsibility to care for ourselves, our children, and for those around us. And we do that when we exercise that dominion, when we are building up society. So part of God's plan for marriage, and this is a little bit outside the box that we have to keep in mind. See, generally you think, well, I got married, and so God's plan for me is to love my husband, love my wife, whichever, love my children, and then that sort of encompasses it all. But when he says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and exercise dominion, it's in that place that we understand, we learn, we discover that God has a plan and a purpose for families that is far larger than the footprint of our house. God's plan for families is for us to have an incredible impact on the building up and the shaping and the molding of our society and of our culture. It's a great opportunity that we have. So how would we trust in God's design? Number one, by honoring his design for marriage. Number two, by celebrating his plan for marriage. And number three this morning, we submit to God's protections for marriage. God's protections for marriage. I don't know if you've ever paid too much attention to the Bible's view on sex. There's a whole lot of no's and not a whole lot of yes's. And there's the way it seems anyway. You just think about it. The Bible says no adultery, no abuse, no fornication, right? No sex outside of marriage. No different kind of things. It's just this one particular thing. And if we're not careful, we go, wow. Only thing the Bible's concerned about is telling us no, no, no. And why do we have so much, so many examples of God forbidding Particular expressions of sexuality. Y'all, listen to me. Sex is not forbidden because it's bad, but because it is such a powerful force for good when it, it occupies the proper place in our lives and in our culture. Do you hear what I said? Sex is not bad, right? But it is an incredible force for good when it occupies its proper place in our families, in our lives, and in our culture. See, sex is the glue that holds relationships together. And as a result of that, there are all of these prohibitions against other kinds of sexual expression because God desires to protect us and to protect our relationships, our marriages, our families from falling apart. If you don't believe me, let's keep going because it's such a big deal. Sex is so important that, that this is why the Apostle Paul commands married couples to engage in regular sexual activity in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says that sexual activity within the confines of marriage is actually spiritual warfare. That when we regularly as married couples engage in sexual activity, we are actually building a wall of protection around our relationship. And this is a healthy 
thing. Now, the church has not always had an appropriate understanding or appreciation for sexual activity within the confines of marriage. In the early church and in the Roman Catholic Church up until the time of the Reformation, there was this really negative view about sex, oftentimes even a negative view about women. So Augustine, for instance, now Augustine, that is St. Augustine. That's what it is when it's Florida. But when we're talking about this fourth century theologian and pastor, his name is Augustine. That's the way we pronounce it. Uh, Augustine was a, was a bishop from North Africa. Uh, one of the most influential theologians in the first half of the church. As a matter of fact, when we get to the time of the Protestant Reformation, much of what we understand about their proper and appropriate understanding of salvation it, it, it was, was formulated by Augustine in the 4th century. So when we get to the Protestant Reformation, they're running back to Augustine, and they're, they're formulating and, and developing an understanding of salvation by grace through faith, by simply reclaiming that which Augustine had already taught. So he is a giant in the church. And yet Augustine had an incredibly negative view about sex. And so he was willing to admit that intercourse might be lawful, but he taught that sexual passion was always a sin. Why? It's important for us to wrestle with this. Part of it is because if we're not careful, our biography... Our biography and our history, our personal history, can become our theology, right? So Augustine, before he came to Christ, was a sexual deviant. Before he came to Christ, he kept a concubine. Before he came to Christ, he was engaged in gross sexual sin. And as a result of that, when he came to Christ, Augustine doesn't seem to be able to reconcile in his own mind how it is that he could take this sinful life and for it to be redeemed for Christ. Hey, if we're not careful, we can do the same things. If we're not careful, we can do the same things. We can allow the experiences of our past to shape and mold us in such a way that it actually has an impact on our theology. We begin to read God's Word not through the lens of what God says, but we begin to read God's Word through the lens of what we experienced. And it can negatively impact our understanding. But it wasn't just Augustine. Um, up until the time of Martin Luther, so we're talking about uh, in, uh, in the 1500s, so a little more than 1,000 years, 1,100 years after Augustine's time, the Catholic Church had created a list of holy days on which or during which sex was prohibited. And by the time of Luther, the list of days in which sex was prohibited for married couples had grown to 183 days. In other words, only half of the year could you even consider that perhaps you can engage in a, in, in a marital act and not be in sin. So the Protestant Reformation rolls around and we've got this reimagining, re-wrestling, re, uh, re that's not the right word. The, the church begins to really dig down into the scriptures and to ask what is the truth about how we should view sexuality within marriage. So let's, let's talk about that. Number one, we should abhor adultery, fornication, pornography, homosexuality, and all other forms of sexual sin. But we must not go beyond the Bible. We must not go beyond the Bible. This is where the early church went wrong. 
They went beyond this word. And there's this weird idea that we have sometimes that, that if, if we can just add a few things to this and, and build the wall a little bit stronger, then we can become godlier. Of course, the problem with that is that the Bible says that's sin. We don't get to add words to this. As a matter of fact, in the book of Revelation, curses are pronounced against anyone who would add to or take away from this word. We generally emphasize the taking away. But the Apostle John says adding to is a grievous sin that must be thought carefully about. Now, in the church, we do well, right? Sometimes what, where, where we mess up. No, let's keep going. We'll come back to that. So God, God hates divorce. We know that, for instance. But God does allow divorce in some certain and extreme situations. There's a temptation on the part of the church to push back against our culture of no-fault divorce, for instance, and to say some pretty crazy things about divorce, but we can't go beyond the Bible. So let's, let's see what happens, right? So generally, our culture... Our, I shouldn't say generally. Oftentimes what we see right now is our culture does something and that in the evangelical church, we react to the culture. So right now, for instance, we've got a preponderance of, of emphasis on no-fault divorce. Getting a divorce is pretty relatively easy now. Um, and so as a result um, of, of our culture moving to the left, that's your left, it's my right, but moving to the left on that, we see the church sort of moving to the right. And the church saying, well, if the culture says that, that no-fault divorce is acceptable, then we've got to dig our heels in to emphasize the importance of marriage. Okay? And, and that's excellent. We should. God hates divorce. But here's where we will sometimes go. We will say, well, if the, if the culture says this, then we're going to go even further to the right, and we'll see the church sometimes say some really dumb things. Right? The church will say it doesn't matter what they've done. You should hold on to that marriage. So we, we've seen the church go beyond God's word. And, and, and even occasionally we've seen church leaders say that like a woman that's in an abusive relationship should just stay in it. Because marriage is a good thing. Folks, the Bible doesn't teach us that there aren't exceptions to this stuff. We can't go beyond this just because I want something else. Another way that we often go beyond what the Bible says, we think about the Bible's teachings on sexuality, for instance, right? And so there's these, these teachings about morality and about lust. Lust is a terrible sin that we must avoid. But sometimes we see our culture moving in this over-sexualized way to the left. And so we want to run to the right as far as we can. And in so doing, again, we come up with some really crazy things. So we say, lust is bad, as it should be and as it is. And so then we'll say something like this. Young girls, because lust is bad, it's your responsibility to keep teenage boys from lusting after you. Do y'all realize how dumb that is? Do you realize how unbiblical that is? The Bible says that we have a responsibility to look at boys and men and tell them to quit being perverts. Not at women to be careful about how it is that they carry themselves. Ladies have got a responsibility to take care of the modesty aspect of their lives, but we don't somehow um, just ex uh, excuse the sin of others. Now, here's what happens in the church. I begin to talk about these things, and somebody says, well, pastor, you have to be careful because there's a slippery slope. Do you know what's awesome about the slippery slope? The assumption for most people within the evangelical church is that the slippery slope is somewhere over there to the left, right? And if I'm not careful, then I'm going to take this one step to the left and the next thing you know, I've slid all the way into liberalism. 
The problem is that some, for some reason in the evangelical church, it's never occurred to a lot of people that there's an equally slippery slope on the right. And if I'm not careful, I can take that step and I might just shoot and I'm gone. Jesus said, narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. And our assumption continues to be that the narrow way is way over here on the right and the wide way is over there on the left. And the reality is this, the narrow way is right down the middle. And over there is sin, and over there is sin. Over here to the left, what is this? This is Israel wandering away from God by ignoring and denying the importance of the Ten Commandments. That's what they did. These things don't really matter that much. Ah, Sabbath, what's the big deal? Ah, cheating, what's the big deal? Ah, lying, what's the big deal? Ah, adultery, what's the big deal? Boom, this is Israel and God is constantly chastising them in the Old Testament calling them back. What do we have on the right? The Pharisees. This is Jesus' ministry in the Gospels. He's looking at the Pharisees over and over and over again and saying, you got all the rules right, but you forgot to love somebody. You got all the rules right, but you neglected your neighbor. You've taken care of all the little rules, but you neglected to love. Y'all, when we think about submitting to God's protections for marriage, we need to cling to this book's teachings about marriage and sexuality. The reason that we all... Let me say this differently. One of the reasons that we might worry about a slide to the right or to the left is because you're ready because our measuring line becomes culture instead of this book and when I am constantly fighting the culture on the right or the left then I'm constantly in danger of drift but if instead of engaging in a regular culture war I'm constantly digging into the word of God and allowing it to shape me and mold me and change me, then good news. I don't have to worry about drifting right or left. I just go with the flow that God's Holy Spirit and his word is shoving me into. And that can be challenging. You see, all of these no's, they feel difficult to us. And they feel difficult because our flesh is telling us something and God's word is pushing us in a completely different direction. I understand. I get it. And yet we've got to allow ourselves to be moved. But it's not just that temptation. The final temptation I think we find ourselves in when we start thinking about and talking about relationships and Sex within the church is there is a temptation to become prudish, prudish, and look, I get it. One of uh, one of our college students walked out and looked at me this morning and said, "Pastor Craig, you took a really awkward topic, and you preached an okay sermon." I said, "Well, I appreciate that. Thanks. Nothing like being encouraged by you know a college kid." Um, but uh, uh, and if you think that's bad, y'all should hear what the sixteen-year-olds have to say to me. I mean, I get you know. Pastor Craig, that wasn't so good. I, I told him, I said, y'all, y'all don't help me much. And the, the standard they've set is so high, and I can't hardly live up to it. But, but there's this temptation to become prudish. So I have a friend. Uh, he is, he's probably 20 years older than me. But he tells a wonderful story, great story, early in his ministry. And he was preaching, and he was talking about an organism 
Uh, matter of fact, he's a, uh, he's a former teacher, and he's talking about an organism, and instead he got tripped up in his words. And instead of organism, he said orgasm. And when he did, there was this sweet lady in the very back of the church. He said, Craig, she almost died. Like, I love to hear him tell the story because he goes through all of the hand motions. He said, he said I said it. He said, and when I did, I turned beet red. He said, and I saw, he said, because I knew what I'd done, but there was no getting out of it then. He said, and there she sat in the back and I saw her and she went, she grabbed her chest and she went, <gasps> he said, what do you do? There's nothing. I can't move forward. There's this temptation for us to become prudish because these are awkward things to talk about in the church. I get it. But we have to keep in mind that the Bible still gave us the Song of Solomon. It's there. It still makes me blush when I read it in the company of other people. And yet God thought it was important for it to be there. Why? Because of what I said like 20 minutes ago. Because sex is such a powerful force for good when it occupies its proper place. We can't be prudish about these things, right? We've got to reclaim a biblical understanding of marriage and sexuality. And then guess what? We've got to be willing to teach it. We've got to be willing to preach it. But a lot of you are like, well, Craig, that's great. But um, here's the deal. I'm single. How does this even apply to me? I'm 16. I'm 14. Or I'm 38 and I'm single. How does this apply? Listen, if you're single this morning, I want to encourage you to prepare for God's better marriage. With all this talk about marriage, what if you aren't? I want you to prepare for God's better marriage. First of all, I'm going to say this. For single people, you should be preparing for marriage now. You should be preparing for marriage now, right? The potential that you will marry at some point in the future, be preparing. That, that means thinking carefully about the kind of people you're going to spend time with, thinking carefully about the kind of person you're going to give your heart to. It means being incredibly protective of your sexuality, right? Remember, sex is really important. And contrary to what culture tells us, it's a big deal and it matters, and when we begin to give ourselves away to, the per to people that we're not married to, man, it, it creates struggles for us down the road. I, I know that it's easy and tempting to not believe that to be true, but as somebody who does a lot of marriage counseling, I can tell you, I, I work with a lot of 26, 27, and 28-year-olds who are still living re with regret for decisions they made when they were 16, 18, and 20. And they carry that with them. Right now, now God's forgiveness is 100% true and 100% possible for you. But I would just encourage you to make decisions today as a single person that have a positive impact on your marriage in the future. And married people, listen, single people shouldn't be off limits to y'all, right? Invite them to dinner. Have them over. Let them hang out with your family. Make room at your kitchen table. I want to encourage you, if you are married, to think about your household being larger than just the people who share your last name. Single people are nuts when they come to your house and you have children, all right? Let me just explain. Like, we, when, when uh, especially when my kids were younger, we seemed to have a lot of single folks that were eating dinner at our house on a regular basis, young single people. Uh, young single people do weird things. They'll be like, oh, do you want me to go tuck the kids into bed for you tonight? And I'm like... Are you serious? You want to do that? That sounds like a wonder thing. Yes, absolutely. We had one of our kids that was taking some medicine uh, at one time on a regular basis, and uh, we had some friends that were regularly eating dinner at our house, and for whatever reason, they'd be like, hey, 
you want me to give, you want me to give the medicine? They, they seem to take it from me. I'm like, if you'll do that, I will wash dishes. Absolutely. You know, you want to put that kid in a headlock and try and get that medicine down their throat? And they think this is fun. It makes no sense to me, right? But they seem to find joy in it. Well, by all means, come on, right? We would love to have you. Why? Listen, there's some folks that go home and they, they, they don't have the chaos in their house and they enjoy being able to come and experience it. Make a spot at your table. Enjoy it. Welcome them, right? And, and single folks, just go elbow your way in. We, we actually like y'all. Don't let it be weird. Everybody just show up and have a good time because God's called us to more. But it's not just about our talk for single folks. All people should prepare for the marriage feast of the Lamb. Everybody. See, when we talk about marriage, Paul says, Paul says that, that when he speaks of marriage, he said it's, it's more, I'm, I'm talking about Christ in the church. He said that a married couple is a picture of Christ and his church. And, and what the Apostle John tells us in the book of Revelation is that the day is coming when Jesus is going to return and he's going to take us all to our eternal home with him. And in that moment, he's going to invite us to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And he is the groom and we as his church are the bride. And he's preparing us and this is the way he describes it. He says, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Y'all, I want to encourage you to invest heavily in your marriages if you're married. But whether you're married or not, I want to encourage you to anticipate that day in the future when you will be united once and for all with Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So this morning the question really is will you trust God's design? Now, as, as we bring this to a conclusion there's a couple things I need to say. First of all, as I told you in the very beginning, this is a difficult sermon for me to preach. There, there, there's some of you, no doubt, here today who have been impacted by adultery. And I want you to know that Jesus loves you right where you are and desires to heal your broken heart. There, there, there's some of you here today who no doubt have been guilty of adultery. And I, I want you to know that in spite of your sin, Jesus loves you right where you are and desires to forgive you. He even desires to heal your broken marriages. These are difficult subjects, but God's word speaks to it. And as a result, we have a responsibility to deal with it even when it's challenging. So this morning, the invitation is simple. Kind of so simple, it's hard if you want the truth of the matter. Are you willing, are you willing to honor God's design in your life? Are you willing to honor God's design for marriage? That means that if you're a young person, that means are you willing to honor God's, God's commitment, God's, or God's commandment to you to to seek out purity, right? 
Are, are, are you willing to, to seek out men and women? Are we willing to seek purity, sexual purity? Are we willing to avoid pornography? You know, one of those things that, that a lot of young people get trapped in is this idea that I, I can just dabble in, in this porn, but I, I, I'll get over it when I get married. Well, you don't. It grabs onto you and it doesn't let go. Are you willing to accept God's plan that that is cruel and detrimental not only to everybody involved in it, but to you and your family? Are you willing to seek Him to accept God's plan for that? Are you willing to accept God's plan for marriage and sexuality? But the other thing is this. This morning, some of you showed up and you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I talk about this wedding feast of the Lamb, and the reality is that you wandered in here today because you know that if you were to die today, you wouldn't go and spend eternity with Jesus Christ. You wandered in here today because you know that you need a relationship with the Lord. If that's you today, when we stand and sing in just a minute, I'd, I'd, I'd invite you to come forward. I'd, I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to introduce you to Jesus. There may be other things you're struggling with today. However it is that we might pray for you, I would love that opportunity. Perhaps you'd like to come up here and pray today. Just gather around and pray for God to be at work, maybe in your own life or your family. However it is that God is at work in your life, as we stand and as we sing, would you respond? Stand with me as we pray. Lord God in heaven, we love you and praise you and thank you for this day. Pray you'd be at work among us. Forgive us for our sin. Make us more like you in Jesus' name. Amen.